0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
1: Hello, and welcome to Money Talks on Economist Radio. I'm Simon Long, an editor here at The Economist. Coming up on today's show... What data on
2: inequality can teach economists about their economic models... It is true that inequality matters for consumption and that those folks lower down the income spectrum have a higher propensity to save any new dollar that they receive. And how to survive the horrors of the work Christmas party.
0: The ideal Christmas do for me would be quietly uh, sipping a cup of tea and watching the test match highlights while the rest of the room sort of sits in in a different corner.
1: first. Boeing has announced plans to halt production of its 737 MAX airliners. The jets were grounded following two separate crashes in October 2018 and March 2019 that killed over 300 people. Even though the MAX jets weren't allowed in the air, Boeing has continued to make them. The firm's one of America's largest exporters, and at least a million people work for it or its suppliers, so the stakes are high. On one estimate, this could shave 0.3 percentage points off America's GDP growth figure. Patrick Fowles is The Economist business affairs editor. Hello, Patrick. Hi, Simon. So why now? Why have they stopped now after continuing to make these planes?
3: Well, ever since the second crash, Boeing's pursued an extraordinary strategy, which is to kind of plough on regardless. So it's expressed remorse about the crash. It's looked into the causes which are to do with the flight control system. But in terms of its business, it has continued to produce... Uh, large numbers of this this plane, even though customers are unable to accept it and none are allowed to fly. It's continued to pay a dividend. It's stuck with its current management. And what's happened is towards the end of the year, this entire edifice is now toppling over. There are 400 new planes sitting on the ground unused. The company's burning up cash because it's not getting revenue, but spending lots of money and everything has come to a head.
1: And what prospects are there of the planes getting regulatory approval? Well,
3: Boeing has signalled, continually through the year that it expects approval in November or December of this year, which seems rather presumptuous given that it is not actually the entity that decides when its own faulty aircraft go back in the air. And what's happened is America's main regulator, the FAA, which has new leadership, has begun to get a bit tougher and signaled that no, actually, it gets to make the decision. And secondly, that it won't happen until 2020. The other important thing is most Boeing aircraft are actually sold outside of America and regulators in other countries are pretty fed up too and are not prepared to simply accept a rubber stamp from the FAA.
1: You paint quite a grim picture of the situation Boeing finds itself in. I mean, I assume it is too big to fail.
3: Well, yes, the paradox is in terms of, for example, Boeing share price, it's not actually been that bad. And one of the reasons is it operates in a duopoly. So if it was in a very competitive market, you would expect Boeing to lose a lot of market share as customers were angry, people were worried about safety, the firm's reputation sank. Instead, it's in an industry with very constrained supply. So Airbus is unable, unable to suddenly crank up output to take a lot of market share. And as a result, Wall Street investors, probably the company's management, are reasonably comfortable that in the end, customers will have to come back to Boeing.
1: Nevertheless, I've seen suggestions that this is actually having a a sort of almost measurable impact on the uh, American economy as a whole. Well, what they've
3: done so far, which is basically to keep the machine cranking, even though they can't deliver the aircraft to customers and customers are unable to fly them, probably has minimized the economic impact. So this huge supply chain has essentially been kept ticking over. Unfortunately, now, I think correctly, they've decided we can't just carry on making an infinite number of unused planes. So by stopping production, there will be probably quite a significant ripple effect through its supply chain. Uh, One question is whether Boeing will use its clout to offer assistance to some of its suppliers to make sure they don't go bust.
1: Patrick, you're chief executive for a day. What do you do? How do you solve Boeing's predicament?
3: Well, I think the right to stop production. I think they need to change CEO and clean up the board. I think they need to offer a really in-depth, independent investigation of what went wrong, still a sense that they might be sitting on information that should be public. They need to shore up their balance sheet and cut their dividend so that they've got the resources to handle A worsening crisis if it does get a lot worse and lastly they need to come up with a new plane so Boeing has not really got a particularly impressive uh, long-term runway of ideas about uh, next generation aircraft for example using electric engines and has also skimped on investment for quite some time so uh, looking beyond this 737 MAX would be a good starting point.
1: And I see they've said they're not going to lay off any people directly. They're going to redeploy them because of this. But is that, is that plausible if the stoppage continues for a long time? A lot of people are involved in this.
3: Yeah, they have a big defence business as well. And, you know, the balance sheet has been uh, hurt but not devastated. So they do have a bit of wiggle room financially to keep people on, on the payroll, even if, um, in effect, they're not doing anything. But, you know, I would guess if the aircraft is not up and running within three or four months, that there will be a much bigger financial shock to the company and they'll have to lay off people. Patrick Fowles, thanks very much. Thanks, Simon.
1: Next up, rising inequality is blamed for all sorts of problems within society – but our understanding of its consequences is still far from complete. Sameer Keynes is The Economist's trade and globalisation editor. Hello, Samaya. Hello. Now, Samaya, you've been speaking to Heather Boucher about this. She's executive director at the Washington Center for Equitable Growth. Tell us about her work.
4: So the Center for Equitable Growth is this think tank that looks at the causes and consequences of inequality in America. And Heather has written a new book called Unbound, How Inequality Constricts Our Economy and What We Can Do About It. And in that, she tries to bring together cutting-edge research that looks into the way that inequality affects economists' understanding of the economy, essentially. I spoke to her and I started by asking her why it's so important that economists take inequality into account
2: the kind of economic inequality we have today has effects on our economy that means that markets don't work as advertised. Economic inequality in all its forms, income, wealth, across firms, acts to obstruct, subvert, and distort the processes that lead to strong, stable, and broadly shared growth.
4: The argument then is that essentially we we have this way of thinking about the economy that economists gave to us. But now with all of this new data and evidence, it has become clear that when you take into account the inequality that we have, those models just aren't perhaps as useful as we thought they were. Can we go through a specific example? So let's think about if the economy is in a recession and you're a policymaker and you need to work out what to do. So what, what does the economic theory tell you in a world where inequality doesn't really matter so much?
2: This is a long-running debate in economics. For example, in the 1930s and 40s John Maynard Keynes made the argument that in order to address a downfall, an economic recession, government should boost spending and should focus those dollars on the people who have the least money because they have the highest what he would call the marginal propensity to consume. That's econ speak for um, if you have less money you're more likely to go out and spend any new dollar that you get. Well In the middle part of the 20th century, Milton Friedman came along and he took a look at that work and he said, well, you know, people are smart and they know that if they get a dollar today from the federal government, their taxes are going to go up in the future because we all understand what our lifetime income is going to be. So if you give me a dollar today, I'm going to save some of it knowing that my taxes are going to go up in the future. So whereas John Maynard Keynes made the case that fiscal stimulus should be both robust and targeted towards those who are most likely to spend it, that is, those at the bottom end of the income distribution. Milton Friedman made the argument that fiscal stimulus wasn't going to be the thing that's going to pull you out of a recession. And even if it was, we didn't need to be focused on those at the bottom because people have this um, understanding of their lifetime income. Well, that's a theoretical debate, and in both of their lifetimes, neither of those economists had access to the data or tools that would allow them to adjudicate that debate. But now we have access to the data and tools. And so one of the economists that I highlight in my book is Karen Dynan. And in her research with a number of scholars, she has shown that actually it is true that inequality matters for consumption and that those folks lower down the income spectrum have a higher propensity to save any new dollar that they receive. They have a higher marginal propensity to consume.
4: Is the evidence in favor of of the Keynesian way of thinking about it so clear-cut? Is there anything that actually Friedman did get right?
2: Friedman is certainly right that people do think about their income over time. There certainly seems to be evidence that those at the very top of the income spectrum do maybe perhaps act like Friedman said. If you give them a little bit of money now, they're likely to save it if they think their taxes are going to go up in the future. But for the most part, looking across the income spectrum, that's just not true. And in fact, in an era of higher economic instability, there is evidence that um, people down the income spectrum are more likely to respond to any new dollar because their experiences are so different economically than those at the top.
4: So what does this mean for, for policymakers continuing on from this this debate between Keynes and Friedman that you're saying is now closer to settled in, in the empirical evidence? What does that mean for what your response should be in the case of a recession?
2: So I think there's a number of implications. So first, and we learned this through the Great Recession, there's a lot of new empirical research that makes this case. We need to focus our efforts at recovery by making sure that we get money in the hands of people who will spend it. So there's empirical evidence that shows we need to focus on fiscal stimulus that's focused at the bottom. But the other thing that we know is that Come the next recession, we're in a world where we have these very low interest rates, where government won't have a lot of wiggle room, and that we know that that's connected to that concentration of wealth that we're seeing in our economy. So I think one way to be thinking about this is, are there things that we could be doing as a part of any future recovery package that could help address this inequality, this systemic wide inequality, while ensuring that fiscal policy is focused at the bottom. You know, Whereas typically in recessions, we talk about tax cuts, given the enormous wealth concentration, should we be thinking about paying for some of that through taxes at the very top, through wealth taxes or taxing capital, so that we can make sure that we are both attending to the long-term needs of the government in terms of revenue, but focusing money on where people are going to spend it and trying to fix some of the um, distortionary aspects of our economy that we're living with now.
4: What do you think we still don't know about inequality and its effects on the economy? What are the most important or, or exciting unanswered questions
2: that economists are still trying to work out? I think there are two but let me focus on one first. For a long time economists didn't really dig in and seek to understand the intersection between market concentration and larger economic trends. So some of the most interesting research I've seen lately is how the rise in concentration across firms is actually affecting economy-wide investment patterns. That's something that I think policymakers need to know a lot more about, right? Because it gives us a reason to think about market concentration that isn't just about the competition structure across these firms, but what it means for investment and innovation and new technologies and all the like. A second area, what does it mean if you have an economy with incredible wealth concentration, But yet you don't have a commensurate increase in investment. Why is it that that money is going increasingly towards credit instead of the kinds of investment that one would like to see? And I think that that set of questions, how we create an economy that is sort of on that stable path, macroeconomists are grappling with. But I think there's, again, there's more questions than answers.
4: Heather, thank you very much.
2: Oh, thank you. This has been a treat. Our
1: thanks to Heather Boucher and, of course, to Sameer Keynes. Thanks, Sameer. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. And finally, we're fully in the festive swing with decorations, treats, and Christmas parties. Many companies sink serious time and money into their yearly celebrations – But is this the best way to let staff blow off some steam? The Economist's Bartleby columnist, Philip Coggan, isn't so sure. Welcome, Phil. Hello, Simon. I suppose these days, with austerity all around us, most Christmas parties are fairly modest affairs, Tell us about the
0: good old glory days. Back in 2001, Deutsche Bank got their equity division, got Robbie Williams to turn up and uh, sing at their uh, Christmas party, uh, Millennium, presumably, around that time. There was another Google Olympics in 2006 where they had a wine cork shooting range presumably uh, once the corks are already out of the bottle. And uh, the trouble with all this kind of stuff is when it gets in the papers, people start to think, well, hold on, if they're spending so much on their parties, how much are they charging their clients? And uh, the second reason people are a bit more cautious these days is that, you know, when you get lavish parties, people get drunk, they start to get up to all sorts and the, the dangers of sexual harassment or whatever seem to get increased. Aside of the enormous money wasted on it, the bad behaviour because
1: of too much drink, I mean, it's still quite a nice idea, isn't it? To get together with your colleagues, let off a bit of steam, celebrate the year, celebrate working together?
0: Yes, I think as long as it's informal. So uh, one issue is if it's all evenings, then... Women or uh, people have to look after children or the elderly may not be able to make it. You know, if you can have it at lunchtime, then it feels like genuinely time off and not having to stay at work for this extra function. Make it also not compulsory. You know, if people want to come, then great. And if they don't want to come and let it, you know, be a bit flexible. So there's roughly speaking three types of bash. There's the sit-down lunch, and there the danger is that you're sitting next to someone who you've forgotten the name of, even though you've been nodding at them for years, and it's just all terribly awkward. There's that evening do where there's incredibly loud music you can't hear yourself think, and you know anybody uh, over the age of 30 would rather go home with a book or you know a box set of the West Wing. And then there's those sort of buffet-type things where you have a drink in one hand and a uh, you know not enough food in the other hand and you're never quite sure whether you're boring the person you're talking to or they're boring you
1: you've just made me realize i missed your 30th birthday phil i'm <laughs> so sorry
0: but joking aside
1: what alternatives are there to the christmas party
0: well have it during the daytime have lots of food so people who don't want to drink can also sort of pig out on christmas cake things like that don't mm-hmm. make it compulsory and you know, if you'd rather go home uh, that's great and you know, well, specialization. So the economist, great believer in this, with Adam Smith. So the leader writers sit around sipping sherry and discussing structural reform. The Keynesians go around their colleagues and borrow money to pay for their drinks. The believers in central banks indulge in quantitative drinking of beers, and those who believe in that modern monetary theory uh, just down vodka shots on the grounds that you can't possibly get drunk uh, if you're controlling your own alcohol supply.
1: That's the economist version, but what's the ideal Christmas do?
0: The ideal Christmas do for me would be, you know, quietly uh, sipping a cup of tea and um, watching the test match highlights while um, the rest of the room sort of sits in in a different corner. But then I'm a miserable old sod.
1: it's Well known you're not a curmudgeon, but actually a party animal. What was the economist party like this year, for example? I didn't go... Neither did I. Do you know why? Why? They held it on election night.
0: They did. They did. Like most people, it seemed, yes. So,
1: two curmudgeons together, we're really in the festive spirit. Thanks very much, Phil.
0: Thank you, Simon.
1: And that's all for this edition of Money Talks. Don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Simon Long, and truly in the festive spirit in London, this is The Economist.
0: Only from Rustolium